Hello everyone and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind, where in 20 to 25 minutes we'll take a complex issue facing you, our culture, or the church with a capital C, and break it down into simple digestible terms as we evaluate the particular issue through the lens of Scripture. Why Scripture? Well, we believe that the Bible has something to say about every inch of thread that makes up the fabric of our existence. So we look to the Bible and the principles that it teaches to make sense of what we see and hear in the culture, so that as Christians, we cannot merely survive, but we can thrive in this crazy world in which we live. At the end of the podcast, we'll point you to some additional resources in case you'd like to dig in a little bit deeper. And you can find those resources at our podcast page located at www.gracetoliveradio.org. This is podcast 007007, and we will be discussing microaggressions and also the entrepreneurial grievance culture in which they thrive. Now, today I'm flying solo in the studio. I'm usually joined by Pastor Mark Stickler. I'm Keith Crosby, lead pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. So thank you for joining me today. Microaggressions. Now, that's a term maybe you've heard and maybe you've not. It's a term with some currency in today's society. Since the term was coined in the 1970s, a $450 billion grievance industry has taken flight within the last five to seven years. It's fueled in large part by the critical race theory and intersectionality movement within our culture. Living in San Jose, I'll wager that all the major tech players here are busy indoctrinating their employees at great cost and expense, as are all the universities and perhaps a few Christian schools and private colleges as well, and even some churches. Some of this discussion today has been fueled by the president's recent executive order banning critical theory training in the U.S. military and the federal government, and that's a good thing. But let's get back to microaggression. What is a microaggression? What I'd like to do today is to give you a working definition and explanation and provide you with some examples and show you why these concepts are being reevaluated with increasing scrutiny and some skepticism in the academic and social science communities. I'll also talk about some popular books that capitalize on this and speak to the emerging backlash from legitimate researchers who are saying, not so fast. So let's get started. What is a microaggression? Well, the term was coined more or less in 1970 by an African-American psychiatrist at Harvard University, Dr. Chester Pierce, in an article entitled Offensive Mechanisms. He characterized microaggressions as a subtle offensive weapon to replace the more overt attacks of whites against blacks. Think of it as a covert racist attack that is more subtle, just as injurious, but less obvious and harder to detect for some. Later... Years later, in a series of focus group, Dr. Darrell Wing Sue expanded on the work of Dr. Pierce to categorize microaggressions into three forms. The first form is what is called a microassault. This is a deliberate, over-the-top use of pejorative language and racial epitaphs, often done in private to avoid detection. A second category is the microinsult. This is a more subtle put-down. Uh, let me give you an example that is offered in some of the popular literature. So here's a physics class, and they've just uh, taken an exam. The exam has been graded and returned to the students. And the white professor calls out uh, an African-American student, Mr. Smith. 
and says, Mr. Smith here, I want to congratulate Mr. Smith because he made a 100 on the exam. And I have to tell you, almost nobody does that in my class. The micro-insult here is the implication or inference that because he's black, it's utterly astonishing that he could possibly make a 100 on a physics exam. The next category is a micro-invalidation. Well, what's that? That basically involves invalidating a person of color's experiences or feelings or demeaning them very subtly by playing their feelings or experiences down. This might be done by someone making a statement like this. I look forward to the day where people don't get hung up on a person's color but emphasize their character more. Now the idea here is that we're downplaying the significance of a person's color and the difficulties they may have faced in the past by allegedly pointing to a higher caliber of uh, criteria like character. And so we demean a person's color and use a smokescreen like character to emphasize something else. Another example of this might be a man opening a door for a woman carrying a number of boxes. Now, outwardly, this might seem polite, but the inference here is that he is communicating to her her dependence on maleness that she as a female is actually powerless or helpless in a man's world and therefore men have to be on hand to help women get by. Now before we go further I want to state something here. I want to be crystal clear about this. Racism is real. Prejudice is real. And despite some impressive societal strides in racial prejudice in the past several decades, as one researcher put it, it's an inescapable and deeply troubling reality of modern life that racism exists. Racism is real. It is evil. It is despicable. It is sin. But some would suggest there is something perhaps more insidious than covert racism. And the only thing that could be worse is numbing the culture's sensitivity to its existence by overstating its presence or a tendency, an increasing tendency, to cry wolf until people just stop listening and caring. Along those lines, an increasing number of scholars and social commentators are expressing concern that this is happening this day because of somewhat careless scholarship and an overreaction in popular culture because in some arenas, racism sells. So let's talk about the careless scholarship, or some would say shoddy scholarship. In a recent publication in the journal Perspectives on Psychological Science, Volume 12, pages 138 to 169, there's an interesting article entitled Microaggressions, Strong Claims, Inadequate Evidence. This scholarly article thoroughly and carefully examines the genesis or beginnings of the word microaggression and its evolution and somewhat non-critical acceptance in some corners of academia and the corporate world as well. The author, Scott Lilienfeld of the Department of Psychology at Emory University, traces the genesis of the concept of microaggression and from its initial emergence in a publication in 1970 to its present state today. In so doing, he shockingly reveals that the research and the definition of terms that is accepted and republished today verbatim in academia, business, and until now government was not the result of scientific research, 
but emerged from a series of roundtable discussions and focus groups put together by Daryl Sue with faculty members who were persons of color who shared a common ideology with Dr. Sue. For those familiar with the scientific method, you might say they developed the hypothesis that these things existed, and since they shared a common worldview, they leapfrogged over the investigative and qualitative processes of experimentation and verification, reasoning since that we all see it this way, it must be true. This is an example of groupthink and confirmation bias rather than scientific experimentation and verification. The article, Microaggressions, Strong Claims, Inadequate Evidence, identifies several concerning flaws with the research, such as perceptual problems, psychological biases, subjectivity, ambiguity, and embedded political values. What this means is, is that Dr. Sue's research is more editorial than investigative, scientific, or objective. It amounts to his take and the take of his colleagues on issues that they view from perhaps a biased or political perspective. And perhaps one of the problems with this is that these editorials have been uncritically accepted and incorporated into diversity training and colleges and universities and corporations and, like I said earlier, until now, government. Now, let's talk a little bit about subjectivity, ambiguity, and the perceptual problems for a moment. Recall the categories of microaggressions we discussed earlier and the examples that we considered. First, there's just the term microaggression and microassault. If anything, microaggression would be an oxymoron because aggression is usually an overt or major affront, and micro speaks to something insignificant. And when you couple that with the idea of micro-assault, you begin to see there's some sort of sensationalistic language associated with this, not the dispassionate scientific consideration one would normally ascribe to good, solid, scholarly research. But let's talk about the micro-assault for a moment. There's nothing micro about racial terms or pejorative terms done in public or in private. So again, I think there's a problem with the, with the concept or the name. Then let's talk about the micro insult, that subtle put down. Wow, you made 100 on the exam. Almost nobody does that in my class. Do you remember that? That was where the white professor is talking to a person of color, uh, an African-American student in a physics class. But then he goes on to address a white student and an Asian student with the same praise. And what we see in the context in which the praise is offered is that three students of various ethnicities accomplished something that had rarely been done in his class. And so what we have here is a perspective, uh, a subjectivity. At first, the African-American student felt embarrassed and put down, but then as the professor went to two other students, we see that this was a matter of really the prejudice of the student himself. This is where this ambiguity comes in because you start ascribing, you start engaging in mind reading here. The micro-invalidation where the uh, person talks about, I look forward to the day where a person doesn't get hung up on somebody's color, but their character. This was considered a racist comment, but when you put it in context, you understand 
it's just the opposite because this statement was uh, sort of a flattened out quote taken from Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech where he said, I look forward to the day where my three children are playing and no one looks at their color but their character. There's nothing racist about that unless you are predisposed to looking at it that way. And a man opening a door for a woman who has boxes in her hands ignores the fact that he holds the door open for that woman and two other men who are behind her. And so what this really becomes is almost a Rorschach test of where you stand on a particular issue. And this is the danger of the editorial nature of uh, Dr. Sue's study, because the racism is in the eye of the beholder. And without solid, confirmatory, qualitative analysis, these uh, assumptions that Dr. Sue and his focus group make are merely editorial, and they perhaps betray a certain uh, political mindset or embedded political values. And that is the problem here is that even the definitions of the terms are, and the terms are constantly changing and being altered. And what we have here is, is something that is like beauty or ugliness in the eye of the beholder. There is a great danger, a grave danger, in linking these perceived microaggressions with implicit messages that may or may not exist. One of the other dangers that was identified is a psychological profile. There are some people who see the cup half empty and others who see it half full. And that type of uh, psychological predisposition has nothing to do with race, but does factor into uh, tainting the editorial data that Dr. Sue and his roundtable discussions and focus groups surfaced. Now, to be clear, there is scant dispute that some individuals engage in subtle slights, insults, and snubs against minorities. That's an indisputable reality. At the same time, the boundaries of microaggression and these related concepts require careful analysis and clarification. The uh, researcher points out in his article is that in the present environment, these terms appear to be fluid and they allow a vast number of potential behaviors to, to be reclassified as racist, which really hinge on highly subjective judgments on the part of those who feel slighted. Now, here's where a critical race theory comes in because it puts a high, high value on lived experience and calls objectivism racist, logic racist, research racist, precision as white ideas. But when the stakes are this high, the greatest care must be exercised in evaluating whether an event was racist or wasn't, or whether it was simply just misconstrued as racist. This brings us to another part of the equation of microaggressions and critical race theory and this entrepreneurial uh, spirit that seems to be pervading those who advance what appears to be a very, very uh, purpose-built agenda. In 2018, there was an article in the New York Times entitled, Hoaxers Slip Restaurants and Dog Part Sex into Journals. And essentially, the article documents a series of uh, intentionally falsified research journal articles submitted to over 20 publications, and the topics were contrived, and the terminology that was included in the articles were trigger words that were intended to get the articles published despite the fact that they were manufactured. The authors were academic professors and uh, magazine publishers 
who wrote an article every 13 days and sent it to a different publication to see if because the topics were things associated with critical theory and LGBTQ and feminist ideology, would they receive publication regardless of the content? My favorite article, if I had a favorite, would have been run in Gender, Place, and Culture. And they published an article about human reactions to rape culture and queer performativity at the urban dog parks in Portland, Oregon, by a fictitious researcher named Helen Wilson. They didn't even research her background. And the article is just insane. And I, I won't, I will spare you the details of what it describes but it tries to make connections between toxic masculinity and human sexual behavior based on 12 months of observations of canine sexual activity in dog parks in and around Portland, Oregon. Now, once the, the hoax was sprung and people and, and the great reveal took place, all these publications had to print retractions. But what it revealed was a proclivity an inclination to publish anything that confirmed the biases already held by these uh, journals and, and magazines. But it, all, what it also reflects is a hostility to male culture, such that it is, to Christianity, because Christianity is identified as one of the great evils in some of these articles, and how readily uh, secular culture is and politically correct culture and critical theorists accept anything that affirms their pre-existing biases. This is confirmation bias at its worst. And what it also reveals is a bias against what they perceive as Western white culture, particularly Christianity, which is listed as a primary oppressor groups of people of color and minorities and people of different genders. So what you have is pretty much of an echo chamber with people offering opinions and not research, and then they're quoted by other people who then are requoted by them, and you have this never-ending creation of a questionable body of material that gets passed off as research, which brings us to How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, and also White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. What these are are essentially books that repeat some of Sue's research uh, and also basically serve as an echo chamber. And they're editorial. They are not substantive. And they are recommended to young adults and children, students and colleges and high schools. And these works are passed off and received uncritically as if they're true because nobody wants to be a racist and we all we should all want to oppose racism, oppression, and discrimination in all shapes and sizes, but we also want to avoid the crying of wolf. We want to avoid overstating the case, as so many do. That's why we read in God's Word that, as the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2.8, we are to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. These writers, their material, their basically reflects their own biases and embedded political values, which is contrary to Christ. And these books 
which are too often accepted uncritically by students and our young people, have to be challenged. And our young people have to be warned. And our educators have to be educated as well as challenged because we have the ministry of reconciliation as Christians. And we cannot look to the secular mind in a fallen world with a cultural Marxism, with a postmodern worldview, with a, an ambiguous set of measurements and metrics like microaggressions or micro-invalidations or micro-insults. These people, as the Bible describes, are like those who are always learning, never coming to an understanding of the truth. They have no solutions. They only promise unending upheaval and change. And what they don't know, they invariably, often misguidedly and possibly well-intendedly, make up. And there's nothing worse than making up the wrong cure based on a faulty diagnosis. So while there are people who engage in subtle racism, and while there no doubt is something akin to a micro-insult or a veiled threat or a a veiled form of racism, we have to be very careful that the cure isn't worse than the disease, that we find ourselves crying wolf when there is no wolf, or our own biases create apparitions that don't exist. We have to take a balanced approach to this. We have to be careful, measured, wise. Proverbs tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. And there's nothing worse than misdiagnosing a condition and prescribing the wrong cure. And that's what the ideology and the methodology behind the whole microaggression philosophy does. It sees the specter of racism everywhere and prescribes the same cure even where the cure isn't needed. And it prescribes a cure that is no cure at all. And this leads to further division. It leads to a microaggression fatigue, critical theory fatigue, anti-racism fatigue, and it does more harm than good. What do you do? What can you do? Number one, don't buy into this microaggression critical race theory, there's a racist under every bush and behind every comment philosophy or narrative. Secondly, examine everything. Weigh it in the scales of scripture. You know, God wants to unite us, not to divide us, right? Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is no longer Jew nor Greek nor free nor slave, for male nor female, for we're all one in Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, we're to believe the best about everyone. Love believes all, hopes all, endures all things. And finally, understand this, what fellowship does light have with darkness? These philosophies are born out of an atheistic worldview with an embedded political system that is anti-Christian. So we are to be wise as serpents and as gentle as doves, and we're not to accept these things uncritically, and we're not to passively let them steamroll into our church, our home, or our students' lives, or our young people's lives, or our lives. So don't be afraid to challenge these assumptions, these assertions. Do not be afraid to push back. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like further resources, if you'd like to dig deeper, you can visit us online at www.gracetolive.org radio.org and click the podcast resource button. There you'll find links to some of the articles that we've discussed today. If you are listening on one of the popular podcast uh, platforms like Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, or Google Podcast, please give us a five-star rating, like us, share us with your friends so that we can move up in the rankings and reach more people. 
Thanks for joining us today. God bless you and keep you. See you next time.